and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with conservationists, ecologists, wildlife filmmakers, or really anyone who dedicates their lives to helping nature. I talk to them about their work in wildlife conservation, human and wildlife coexistence, community projects, and worldwide environmental issues. This is part two of our special marine conservation episode. I'm back talking with Jordan Lerma, a drone pilot and marine scientist from Hawaii. In this episode, we will be talking all about the new Netflix documentary, Seaspiracy, and although it does raise a few good points, we will be focusing on why it's actually a really problematic film from the perspectives of both myself, a non-expert observer of the documentary, and Jordan, a marine scientist. This is kind of part two of the episode, and I wanted to kind of release this as sort of as a special early release episode, so... The interview I planned to do with you would have been a little bit longer and I would have released it like in May. But obviously there's this documentary. It's come out fairly recently called Seaspiracy. And it's it's really like controversial. A lot of people have said a lot of things about it. Um, it launched on Netflix, uh, focused on the work of activists such as Rico Barry and the Sea Shepherds, uh, targeted the industrial fishing industry. And it did do some work in like investigative filmmaking, I guess, and kind of exposing... Uh, sustainable seafood certificates um, and it called on all of us to stop eating fish which is like a like a big thing and I kind of I've seen a lot of people now on social media just saying uh, talking about it and I know you have a lot to say about this so we're going to try and break it down into a few key questions and kind of keep it simple which is quite hard to do because it's a very complex issue um, but first off, I think I saw you call this documentary sensationalist. To my listeners who may not know what the definition is, what did you kind of mean by this? So I, I think when you take, you know, there's a, there's a couple of statements in the film, you know, no fish left by 2048. Um, you know, you have graphics of, of killing uh, long-thin pilot whales in the Faroe Islands. You have graphics of bottlenose dolphins being capped, uh, um, penned into captivity in, in Taiji, you know, when, when you use those things to get people's attention without, without giving people the context behind a lot of issues, I call it sensationalist. You know, it's, it, the film is, it, it's a really good call to action if you're for, 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 for veganism, right? If you, if you, if you like, like Cowspiracy, the, the, the film that came before it, you know, for what it is, I, I think a lot of, a lot of Western folks are, are privileged to have a choice in diet. And the call to action to, to, to be more environmentally conscious, I think is a good, the, the highlight of the film. I think the film does a good job doing that. But I, I don't agree with using, uh, you know, images of killing long fin pilot whales, um, slaughtering bottlenose dolphins uh, to, to get that message across. I, 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 I'm a supporter of using uh, science research and fact to, to get people to change their decisions, not they're killing all the whales in the world. You know, there's not going to be any whales left because of plastic pollution. I'm not, I'm not a fan of doing that. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. And there's a lot of, uh, I think there is a lot of documentaries like that. And obviously yeah. we do, there is um, maybe a, a place for, um, you know, big cinematic footage and, and graphic kind of imagery. But I think unless it's, yeah, I agree that unless it's backed up um, by science properly and, and that's communicated effectively, um, I think that's something we've seen a lot in um, kind of natural history TV generally. There's all the big kind of on the ground conservation issues don't really get 
much attention but you know blue planet 2 and big like planet the big attenborough blue chip bbc shows they get all the they kind of you know make move their camera angles a little bit and they'll get the beautiful cinematic footage and it's really important to show people you know things like that and the beauty of the world but it's also important to communicate science effectively and i think a lot of these films don't do that um and i yeah i'd agree with you there even as a as a non-scientist um one thing this documentary in my opinion failed to do is include the voices of indigenous people subsistence fishing communities and local people i know yeah there was like this brief interview with a faroese whaler um but I mean, the, as you said, the rest of the Faroe Islands footage was definitely a bit of a gory sensationalism. It was just very kind of dramatic, lots of blood and just, it, yeah, it was, it was a bit crazy without giving any context to the actual cultural practices. Mm-hmm. And what I immediately saw on social media was everyone I knew, kind of, you know, a lot of people. Um, I think less so uh, a sort of scientists, a lot of marine scientists were actually kind of taking the opposite view. But a lot of people that I saw were saying sustainable fishing does not exist. It was this kind of blanket statement. And while perhaps many of them kind of meant that the certifications weren't necessarily reliable for supermarket bought fish, I think um, big sweeping statements like this can, they kind of cancel a lot of cultural heritage and practice and without really knowing the stuff behind it. I have my own opinions on sustainable fishing and I'm very still very much exploring this area because uh, it's, it's kind of very hard to wrap your head around it here in the UK um, because we just don't have real subsistence communities anymore. But I'd love to kind of hear your opinion. Do you think there is such a thing as sustainable fishing? And if fishing is done on a large scale at the potential expense of other marine species, can it ever be really sustainable? Yeah, those are those are excellent questions, and and I too, I mean, I mean, I'm exploring this topic as well. You know, studying studying whales and dolphins, they do overlap with fisheries in some in some cases, um, but you know, that's a tough one. Uh, so, I guess the question is, do can large scale industrial fisheries be sustainable? Mm. And I think following the model of smaller fisheries, I think anything is possible, um, but it it. it Will industrial fisheries be willing to put up the capital to make fisheries sustainable is the question. And I think small scale fisheries that are sustainable have really good stock estimates and really good enforcement. And if you have those two things, then with proper monitoring, I I think the the, the fisheries can be sustainable. The problem is with a lot of these indigenous, a lot of the places that don't have the capital to to support the monitoring, third world countries, I mean, developing countries have other problems to deal with like famine. (laughs) They have a lot of other issues that contribute to the fisheries problem. So it's tough to take, you know, one specific problem and say, hey, you guys can do this better when, you know, they're just struggling to, to generate enough protein to feed their people. So, I mean, something like 3 billion people depend on fish who can't switch to an alternative. And you're going to tell these people to stop getting their fish from industrial sources, they'll die. <laughs> right? So it's, it's a tough one. It, it's something that there's no easy fix. And, and setting goals, I think establishing monitoring practices and setting goals for sustainability are important. You know, that 2048 figure that they cited was from a 2006 paper where they kind of just drew a trend line and just continued it out and said, oh, at 2048, it hits zero. There's zero fish left. 
and I think that's wrong. It doesn't take into account that there are half, half of the fisheries, um, there's a new paper that came out in 2020 showing that half of the fisheries um, currently have monitoring, in, in monitoring practices and are moving to be fully sustainable while some are already fully sustainable. And, you know, ignoring the voice, I mean, the, the film had no, no, talked about nothing about uh, indigenous fisheries. You know, as a native Hawaiian, native Hawaiians had fish ponds that, you know, had these entrances to a big pond um, that fed out to the sea. So fish could swim in and out. And they had these uh, um, wooden poles going up and down that would be a certain size. So if a fish swam in, grew in the pond, it couldn't swim out, but smaller fish could still swim out. So you're unable to, to take, take certain size fish while, while leaving um, other fish to grow. You know, there, there is a lot of evidence for, for how indigenous practices could, could possibly make their way into to large scale industrial fisheries. But then it's a matter of price and cost. And I, I think until there's proper monitoring and enforcement and bearing those costs into the price of the fish that we consume, it's gonna be very difficult to get there. You know, I think the film did a good job of, of highlighting that issue. But I don't think that saying it's impossible is a good idea, just because so many people depend on, on fish as a protein. Yeah, yeah, I think it's important, very important to kind of raise the point that there is so many people around the world who depend on coastal resources in general. Um, and I think it's, um, yeah, it is really tough because obviously a lot of people, they made very, as you said, because it's a, made in a sensationalist way, they made very sweeping statements. So all the stuff about, sorry, um, all the stuff about um, certification labels. So mm -hmm. saying that the dolphin safe tuna label and marine uh, stewardship council label msc was potentially you know very unreliable and, and not guaranteed i think that scared a lot of people they were like wait my, my the fish that you say is sustainable actually can't be guaranteed what is this and so a lot of people will kind of just immediately a lot of people who are privileged enough to will just immediately switch off and, and stop buying fish because of this i think and there'll be a kind of a big upward trend uh, as follows most kind of um dietary documentaries um of, of people getting um you know just cutting that out of their diet and i think without the it, it creates this kind of culture on social media of everyone being like this 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 and i think it can just lead to arguments because then the actual people who know what they're talking about will jump in and try and calmly explain why these people are wrong why the statements are wrong and then yeah it's it's gonna with the with the toxic nature of social media already especially platforms like twitter i i can't even begin to imagine what's gonna yeah. happen um with stuff like this yeah i mean like you said i mean even just reading the comments on on posts from oceana or, or some of the other nonprofits that were ngos that were mentioned in the film it's it's so toxic and it's so dangerous i mean these are these are people who dedicated their lives these organizations are dedicating their their time and energy and resources to try and solve this fisheries issue and really the last thing they need is a, a sensationalist documentary kicking them down um you know no one no one's perfect no label is perfect fisheries are very complex you know, even, even in Western countries like the United States, some of our fisheries don't even have 50% observer coverage. You know, and this, this is the United States, number one, uh, sorry, that's my alarm. Uh, the number one economy in the world doesn't have 50%, higher than 50% observer coverage on some of the fisheries. And that's crazy. Yeah. 
right? I, I will say one, one, one example of uh, a pretty interesting uh, cetacean-related fishery interaction. Um, for the Hawaii longline fishing uh, fishery, uh, there's a, a false killer whale take reduction team. So false killer whales uh, are the number one animal for, for predating on long lines. They'll go after, they'll, they'll actively seek out the sound of the long lines, deploying their lines and wait until there's fish on it and then take the fish. And they're very good at it, um, but they have scars and uh, stuff to, to, to show that sometimes they're not always as good as they think they are. And in some cases they actually get hooked. So in Hawaii, there's a, a false killer whale take reduction team. And in the fishery, if there's two or more serious mortality events, so, so most times it's very difficult to see if an animal actually dies on the line because they pull in the line, they cut the line, the animal goes off and they can't really determine how severe the injury was. Mm. In most cases, they call it a severe injury because of they, they ingest the hook and they die. If two of these things, two or more of these events occur in a calendar year, they close the entire fishery down. And this has okay. been triggered pretty much every year for the past four or five years. And it's, it's evidence to show that one, I think incentivizing fishermen to not catch false killer whales by saying, hey, if you guys do this thing, we're gonna just shut down the fishery. Like you guys won't be able to fish. Fishermen react to that. They'll, they're, they're looking at new technologies to try and reduce those things using different shapes, different types of hooks, using stronger branch lines so that they actually they can reel the, the animal in and remove the hook. You know, there, there are, there are using there's the ways to use technology to try and reduce interactions with whales and dolphins and incentivizing fishermen to do that i think is the right way forward for sustainable fishing saying people shouldn't eat fish altogether is just a bad 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 solution to that problem people are still going to eat fish people are still going to actively fish it's, it's how do you solve the problem entirely and i think one small example of that in hawaii is it's pretty cool it's hard because the the documentary just covered so many issues without really giving any context to any of them it was really kind of um i think uh i don't know it just gave um yeah it, i i think each individual issue that the documentary covered probably could have had its own entire documentary with a lot more science and a lot more context for example yeah, in my opinion like i did a research project for uni last term on the cove um with obviously incredible incredibly powerful piece of undercover documentary filmmaking. Um, I think that the first 20 minutes of Seaspiracy was basically copying the cove. It was just the same thing. It had Rick Abari, it had the, a random American dude going with a camera to Taiji and getting followed by police. And it had blood in the water and dolphins being killed. And, and that was kind of it. And I was like, yeah, but that's already been done really, really well <laughs> by someone else. Um, and I think that kind of is a common theme throughout. There was a big issue that was raised by a few people I kind of know in the in the social media realm um, about the lack of diversity in the film. I think there wasn't really a big focus on women marine scientists. And there was one person in particular, a woman and kind of member of the marine science community. I think I'm going to get this wrong. I think it was Christina Hicks, mm -hmm. her name was, who said that her... Um, she wasn't aware that she was actually in the film, firstly, which is a big ethical thing for any documentary filmmaker or any storyteller. Um, and also her, she wasn't aware what her words were being used for. And I think her, her clip was actually really short, just put next to some stats or something. Um, and as obviously as a storyteller, I think that's a big, hugely ethical issue straight off the bat. 
but let's kind of focus on the big picture issues. I think by twisting the words of some of the people um, in the film, but also by painting, I think it painted um, almost every Asian person I saw in the film. It painted them in a really bad light in terms of shark finning and the, the whole complex issue around uh, fisheries trade in Japan, China and Hong Kong. It was it was pretty pretty bad, I think, and it, it really didn't kind of um, I don't know. It just didn't paint anyone in a really good light. There, um, do you think this film kind of showed covert signs of of white privilege or sexism and racism, or is that? Oh, I don't big? think it was. I don't think was it was covert that... at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a white man going to Asia telling them what they should and shouldn't do. Yeah, <laughs> where have I heard that story? before um yeah i mean there's so a couple of things unraveling what you just what you just said i mean it's it's shady to do those things like they did to the ngos you know scientists i work with a lot of scientists and they're willing to sit down and have these conversations with people and not everything is good right some of the some of the areas that people research are messy and you can't just take the messy part of what the people are saying out of context one, it helps, it helps provide the insight to why, why these NGOs are operating, right? They're going to talk about the problems. And if you, just, if you just show the problems, people talking about the problems with, with what they're doing and not showing about what they're actually trying to do to solve those problems, one, it just paints them in a bad light, like what you said, but it doesn't help, you know, it's going to be so difficult for those organizations to get more funding now. You're going to make their jobs a lot harder because the general public now believes that they are not doing a good job. And that's, that's terrible. And the second thing, I mean, I, 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 I get a lot, I'm half Japanese. So I get a lot of, I, I, I tend to respond to a lot of anti-Asian uh, comments on social media. And I really should stop. Um, I get kind of worked up about it. Um, just a question to you. Do you know why, uh, outside of Taiji, do you know why Japan started uh, commercial whaling? I, I actually don't because it's, yeah, it's been a while since I properly looked into, um, into it. And, uh, and again, the only um, experience I have with it is watching The Cove, which mm -hmm. again, however <laughs> brilliant a, a documentary I think it is, it was another documentary made by a white, Amer white Americans yeah. about practices in mm -hmm. Japan. So yeah, I, do, I don't. So yeah. So one of the, the main reasons why Japan increased commercial whaling uh, was because the United States dropped nuclear bombs on them and they needed to find another source of protein. So I, I think Western countries are very quick to forget that a lot of the problems that exist in the oceans are because of what our actions and some of the responses to our actions like Japan increasing whaling ultimately are because of Western action. So, you know, in, for, for Taiji specifically, one, I don't think we should tell people what their culture should and shouldn't be. Same goes for the Faroe Islands. I can disagree with how they're killing, why they're killing, and who they're killing, but I have to stand back and respect that they've been doing it for four to 500 years. Mm. That's their culture. And the same for Taiji. I mean, Japanese have been traditionally whaling for a long time, you know, over a thousand years. That's the culture. We should respect that. We, we can disagree with it and we can, we can outline why it's wrong for on the science level for a population, but it's their culture and they, 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 
they alone should should be responsible for for understanding the the and realizing the consequences of their actions and i think they're already doing that you know they have they have very strict take limits for both faroe islands and japan so you know i think people focus on killing whales and dolphins because they love whales and dolphins um but overlook a lot of other issues that are affecting populations like ship strikes and toxic contaminants so you know it's easy to hate on stuff that is violent that's sensationalist uh i called it sensationalist trash mm, yeah i mean it's it's very very important that you're talking about this because i just i didn't know any of that so thank you um there's a good um have you watched uh, beyond the cove i haven't but i there's will a, there's a japanese filmmaker who did the it, it outlines all the damage that happened because of the documentary with wow. Taiji, so yeah, it's, 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 it's I, I know a, a bit of the fallout, but really didn't didn't really look too deeply into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's yeah, I think I think it's um, it is just about taking things totally out of context, and it's it's really really bad. And yeah, I I I kind of said over because I just wasn't sure about how you felt about it. But I, I can <laughs> I could probably agree with you that it's very very overt, not covert. Um, in some in some parts uh, i think it's um yeah like for example let's take the faroe islands they have been uh hunting pilot whales for a really long time um and it's it is to anyone who comes from the outside or sees it it is a horrible horrible thing because our society is kind of conditioned to like cute animals like whales and we're like mm-hmm. wait they're all being slaughtered and the the water's full of blood why are they doing this um and i think you know with with the documentary you had what, 10 minutes 15 minutes of farrery's footage and then um i'm, I'm lucky because i've uh, on my actual degree course as a, a third year last year of the, and he's gonna carry it on as a long-term project to actually spend time up there and he, I believe he was a vegetarian for a really, really long time. And he, um, he actually ate whale meat there and he immersed himself in the culture and he's produced a, um, the, I think a book that will be published in the next two years or something and a, um, photography essay and, and projects on it. And just seeing, I was lucky enough to read that. And so I kind of going into this documentary and watching this, I knew about the cultural practices of the of the Faroese and I knew about their island heritage and yeah, how they do things. But I think because that's not common knowledge and just general, in general, indigenous practices aren't common knowledge. A lot of people see that and then react incredibly negatively towards it. Um, because just because like indigenous culture is not part of our education, which is yeah, pretty rubbish. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree, and and I, I you know I applaud. There's a lot of indigenous social media accounts that are are, are becoming more popular, and I I I really want to do what I can to try and support that and supporting. You know, there's there's even indigenous people working in science now, um, and I think that's awesome, and I think it's 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 needed to kind of balance out that perspective, like you said. You know, one of the one of the things I ask folks when they, they bring up Faroe Islands and killing longfin pilot whales is, is, is do they know the population size? I asked them, do they know the population size of longfin pilot whales in that part of the Atlantic? And 99% of the people don't. You know, they, they just see killing whales. And killing whales is bad if, if, if the stock size is small. Like the Japanese killing Antarctic minke whales, for example. That was really bad. I mean, they're, they're critically endangered. 
But, you know, Japan leaving the IWC and saying they're not going to whale in the Southern Ocean anymore, restricting their, their whaling to their EEZ is a good thing for, for in most cases. I mean, there's still a somewhat endangered stock of J, J stock of uh, minke whales, but, you know, re- people need to realize, people need to understand that sustainability is taking animals out of a population and giving a population, is, is there enough uh, individuals in a population to rehabilitate the population in a given time period? And that's what sustainability is to me. And, you know, in, in for Faroe Islands, looking at um, population size, it's like 800,000 or just under 800,000 whales. I mean, it's a lot of whales and they're taking, sometimes they take zero and sometimes they take, you know, less than 1%. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough one. Um, but I, I always, I always tell people that, you know, it goes back to our topic of sustainability. If we're taking and, and consuming resources from a sustainable population, I don't think it's bad, but you know, we, we need to make sure that that is true. And I think more research can probably be done doing social dynamic stuff with longfin pilot whales in the Faroe Islands. Um, longfin pilot whales, like most blackfish, are very social animals, so they have really strong social bonds. So taking some animals out of a population, probably you have to up the, the amount of animals that die because of that loss to some, some individuals. Um, but, you know, like I said before, they've been doing this for a long time, and we need to respect that. Um, all too often we're, we're Westerners are, are very quick to say, you know, my white, my white idealism is, is, is something that you guys all should do. And I, I strongly disagree. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely something that I've had to say to a couple of people on social media recently who like kind of understand this, but don't really get it. And they just put these sweeping statements up and I'm like, yeah, we are, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a white guy. I'm young. I'm fit. I'm healthy. I have, if I want to, I have the privilege to, I don't eat meat for a start, but I have the privilege to stop eating, to be, you know, to go vegan or something. And I'm, I'm not gonna, not gonna die, but I don't have any, you know, I might disagree. As you said, I might disagree with a method of hunting or subsistence fishing, and, you know, like most naturalists or animal lovers will probably disagree with uh, villagers in a village in Greenland who hunt a polar bear and kill a polar bear because we're all like, oh, no, polar bears are endangered. We've got we to gotta give, you know, the love to the polar bear. But so we might disagree with it, but we, we don't have a right to tell them to stop. As you said, we don't have that. That's not our prerogative. That's not kind of we, we need to stay very clear away from that. And I think until we, you know, we need to find ways to maybe work with communities, but not never just blanket against them from afar. Never kind yeah. of just shout at them from on, you know, online. And that's really important. Um, yeah. I think the one I last think- thing that I want to say about that, sorry, one last thing. Um, you know, I think the irony is a lot of these people who, you know, defend films like Seaspiracy and The Cove, you know, a lot of their actions go against what they're saying online. Um, you know, they, they support political candidates who don't um, do anything to help the environment. And I think that's probably the biggest issue I have is that, you know, they, people can say whatever they want online, but it's how they, act, how they you know, how, what actions come out of these types of films. And, and seeing people who are privileged enough to go vegan and stop eating meat and stop eating fish, I mean, good for them. But um, you know, I, I think people 
people need to realize where the biggest uh, amount of change that they can uh, influence is. And I, I think for me, that's voting and, and supporting candidates that I don't want to get your podcast to be too political. Oh, um, it's, it's, it's fun. No, it's <laughs> but I always fun. encourage people to, to look at uh, political candidates' environmental record. And if we're really passionate about environmental change and, and, and making environmental um, priorities uh, known, we need to support candidates who, who have very strong feelings about the environment. And that wasn't the case for the United States for the past four, eight, four, four years. Um, and hopefully it'll change now. Um, but, but, you know, the United States has, you know, like rejoining the climate accord, the Paris climate accords, it's, it's, it's such a huge motivation to, and, and, and uh, way to show the rest of the rest of the world that, you know, we're, we're dedicated to, to trying to solve these problems. And, Sensationalist documentaries reach a very small amount of people, whereas large-scale government policies affect everybody. And I think that's where we'll find the most change. Yeah, yeah. No, I definitely agree. And, and that's something that, um, don't worry about making it political. We, <laughs> we talk about it a lot when I talk to UK-based conservationists because, um, yeah, the UK is incredibly nature-depleted. We have a very low amount of biodiversity and we have some absolutely appalling people in charge of our country so definitely <laughs> something to bear in mind with voting um for sure and i mean i there, there were a, a couple of good points raised in the film and i know a lot of people will be kind of frantically searching for ways to help for action points um however as we've just discussed quite thoroughly i don't think that film necessarily gave all the best action points um, on this podcast and in life in general, I like to reiterate that we need system change, not individual change. But with a consumer facing industry like industrial fishing, we sort of need both. Um, and I think that, I mean, could, could you tell my listeners a few kind of relatively simple actions that folks at home can do to, to understand more and to learn about the issues that are raised in the film? Yeah, and, and I really hope that people actually are doing this without me having to, to tell them, but, but research the topics for yourself and, <laughs> and, and, and learn about the issues in the context. I mean, all of us, every one of us have individual life experiences that, that shape how we feel about things. And my perspective isn't, you know, I think my perspective is right, but doesn't mean it's right for you or right for someone else. Um, so honestly, do the research for yourself, you know, um, there's there's a few good websites. Um, SustainableFisheries-UW.org uh, is the one that I push people to. It has a good mix of uh, of citing sources and showing people the raw data, but also provides a, a factual opinion about these things. And I'll send you the link to that because I might have got that URL wrong. Um, yeah, that's great. And I think that's a great start. Um, it highlights a lot of the recent research in in fisheries management. Um, I'm pretty sure they're doing a post. They've, they've been doing a lot of responses in, in a lot of uh, a lot of uh, social media uh, in response to this film. So I'm sure they're going to come out with a, a a page with a lot of the factual stuff that people can read, and it'll be all in one place. Um, two, I I think if you're going to eat fish, ask 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 where you get ask where you're getting the fish from. I mean, if you're ordering it from a restaurant, ask where the fish is from. If they can't give you an answer, it's probably not someplace good. Um, mm. And, and if, you know, if that's the case, don't eat fish from that place. But a lot of, lot of folks, a lot of the fish that I eat, I, I'm based in Olympia, Washington. A lot of the fish I eat, I ask them where they come from. That comes from the coast. It comes from family fishermen who do hook and line. 
and they catch their own stuff every day. And I, I love supporting fishermen. I grew up because of fishermen. Um, so I think people, people need to be more cognizant of not really relying on labels, but ask, talk to people. I mean, it's, it's, it's no harm done in asking a, a restaurant, asking a, a grocery store, um, you know, where they got their fish from. Um, the other thing that's a little bit more difficult is, is to, to support science-based policy. And I think that's more complicated because it requires a little bit more understanding of the context behind each individual action. Um, but relying on policy that, that, you know, is reactionary to these types of documentaries because of public interest isn't always good. And we need to support those NGOs who are on the ground, collecting data, doing the work, doing the science. And whether that's a dollar donation or just spreading the word about an NGO that you like and support, um, you know, they, and I, I work for nonprofits, so we need all the, all the help um, getting awareness out there because chances are we're not spending money on advertising dollars. We're spending money on actual research. And that sucks for us because nowadays a lot of funding comes from direct spend advertising. Uh, but we choose not to, not to put any dollars to, to, to ads to, to show what we're doing. We, we like our actions to be reflected in the policies that get passed because of the work that we do. And that goes, that goes for a lot of the NGOs that are out there that no one's heard of because they're, they're working hard. Yeah, definitely. I, I think um, I'll, I'll put all those links and some of the links you've sent me before uh, in the description and I'll put like some, make a little link tree on social media or something because it is a, a big issue that I think a lot of people need to do their own research as you said but also kind of if we've got a few links that we can kind of direct people to immediately that'd be really good um I mean we're wrapping up now but before we finish we're going to do like a little quick fire round if that's all right it's just oh four, my gosh all right questions that I kind of ask all my guests it's I'll just pull out my ethernet cord for a little bit <laughs> Um, so first off, what's your favorite animal? Peregrine falcon or, or pigeon. Where, where is a place you'd like to go and connect with nature? Kind of the one, the main place you feel really at home outside? The middle of the ocean, uh, furthest away from people that I can get is where I feel most <laughs> at peace at least. Do you have a conservation hero? Oh, yeah, that's a... So no, I don't. Fun. I don't. Um, you know, I, I yeah, I, I grew up outside of this world of, of wildlife conservation. You know, I, I didn't grow up watching Cousteau and Sylvia Earle and Attenborough. I mean, I've watched most some of the films now. I mean, really, I, I, I think it goes to show that my passion really my passion is really using using technology to study these these animals and try to answer questions. And I, I love the work and I love the animals and I, 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 I support, I fully support conservation, but I just really haven't idolized anyone to the flat pack that, to that, to that level, I think. But who, I do, think who do people usually say? Um, it depends. There's like, we've only actually had two people ever say like Attenborough. I think a uh -huh. lot of people kind of, we've had a couple of Chris Packhams. Um, we've had uh, a lot of people have said like my team, or like you know, people I work with, or like a like a local. And that's a good answer. <laughs> like a like a local wildlife hero to them, and, which I think is a really good one to say. Is like a, is, it, not, is it too late to say my boss? My boss, who's probably gonna watch this or listen to this. Uh, 
No, we'll, uh, we'll definitely That's keep funny. all this in. It's all good. Okay. But, um, <laughs> and well, last off really is, is how do you take your coffee? Lately, uh, I've been doing black. Straight up. I love that feel. question. I, th- I think I question. everyone, everyone I've interviewed who has had like any experience with actual scientific or, or filmmaking uh, field work has said black coffee because that's all you get. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. it's just kind of like, you know, you're not going to have like an espresso machine in the middle of the rainforest or in the yeah. middle of the ocean. You're going to have <laughs> just crappy instant black coffee. Just, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the, that's the feel for most people in the field. I mean, on occasion I, I do, uh, I do have a uh, uh, espresso machine. I'll make like just a bunch of shots and I'll put the ice in them. And as, as it dilutes, it's like good in the morning cause it gets you going. And then as it dilutes, it keeps you going through the day. Um, but that's really only when I'm working near my, my home, I, I have that privilege. Most of the yeah. time it's instant black coffee or cowboy coffee is what we call it in, in the States. <laughs> yep. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. So, I mean, I think we'll, we can wrap it up there, but before we finish, I just want to ask where can people find you? I mean, I'll link to all your projects below, but what are your yeah. social media handles and how can my listeners at home kind of get involved with? The yeah. Work? Most, most importantly, you can follow our work at, uh, on Instagram, uh, at Cascadia research on Twitter, uh, at Cascadia res R E S. Um, my personal Instagram is Ueho U H E H E U. Um, and yeah, um, I, I respond to most people and I'm, I'm super passionate of having these conversations with, with everyone. Uh, very, very, very grateful that you, you asked me to do this podcast. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for being on it. It's, uh, it's been a, a privilege and a pleasure because I think it's, you know, you've said some things that maybe some of my listeners and maybe some of the people I know might not agree with, but I think that's very important to, yeah. to have open discussions because yeah, absolutely it's, yeah, and, there's, yeah. It's, we live in a world of twitter and cancel culture and i think um big convoluted issues need to be properly looked at and and scrutinized i mean we're actually touching an hour so i might actually retract my decision and uh, (laughs) i might split this up into two episodes but if i do both of them will come out very close together and probably this week because it's just a a topical thing so i'll make sure it's a quick turnaround um but yeah thanks so much for doing this No, thank you for having me. Hope to do it again soon. Thanks again to Jordan for taking the time to speak to me today about Seaspiracy. All the links to his social media and some of the sites we reference will be in the description down below. And if you have any questions about Seaspiracy or our perspectives or opinions on it, please don't hesitate to get in touch. The same really goes for any episode of the podcast that I've produced. I'm always happy to take a question and connect anyone with one of my guests who might be able to give you a better answer. So in part one, which was released yesterday, I featured a company called Newground Coffee. So I won't feature a different coffee company today. Please head over to my Instagram or check out yesterday's episode to find out more about Newground Coffee and the amazing work they do. If you feel like you've learned anything of value from the podcast, please consider supporting me through a one-off donation on Ko-fi. I don't earn anything from the podcast, so supporting me on Ko-fi means I can continue to buy ethically sourced coffee to feature, I can expand my storytelling toolkit, and I can also, in the future, support local and indigenous coffee-growing companies and any contributors to the podcast. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts, and a few more places. As ever, thank you all so much for listening. I've been your host, George Steedman jones 
And this is the Coffee with Conservationists podcast. Thank you.